0: Hello, dear listeners, welcome back to episode 46 of the Practice of Being Seen podcast. If you've been listening along, you'll notice that we're taking on a new direction. We're starting to explore relationships a bit more deeply in the past few episodes, and we'll be hanging out there for a bit longer. It is, after all, my geek out place. Today, I'm joined by Beth Lawandi lofstrom Beth is a licensed psychotherapist in private practice in Cincinnati, Ohio. She works with couples and individuals experiencing loss, betrayal, and relationship tangles. Her trademarked communication framework, clean, non-blaming communication, and her whole human parts theory, or what therapy, we referred to this as holistic human parts theory in this interview have helped clients heal beyond some of the toughest challenges that humans face. Infidelity, heartbreak, death of a loved one, complete existential crisis. A particular fan of the midlife transition, Beth invites clients to see themselves accurately, gain deep understanding, and practice unconditional acceptance on their way to healing. When her clients successfully navigate the midlife psychosocial crisis and arrive closer to their own regeneration and stagnation, Beth is often heard telling them that they are set to experience the best of life for the rest of life. Beth and I really dove deep and we explored what might often be considered a taboo topic. If you sat down and asked a room full of people whether they'd ever been cheated on or cheated on somebody or experienced some ripple of what that feels like in their lives, every hand would probably go up. The truth is that infidelity and affairs are really common in intimate modern relationships. Beth has developed her own theory and methodology for working with couples who have experienced an affair and it might go against the grain. So in this episode, we're going to look at some of those biases and maybe push those limits a little bit.
1: You ready? Let's go. Welcome, Beth. Thank you, Rebecca. I'm so, so
0: happy to be here. Oh gosh, I'm so excited to be talking to you today. Mm -hmm. You know, I think one of the things that this podcast is really doing a lot of lately is we're going into like the the murky muddy places in all of our lives and taking a look at the stuff that we don't often talk about <laughs> and i think that you are such an amazing clinician to sit down with and to have some of these discussions about because i know that so much of your work talks about things like like infidelity yeah yep yeah and i was hoping that maybe we could we could go there, and we could just dive right in to the conversation. You know, when we talk about infidelity, we often talk about the person who's been betrayed, but the person that we don't talk about very often is the betrayer. Right. I like to, I like to call that person the offender. The offender. Talk to me a little bit about your choice and words there. And
1: yeah, man, there are so many terribly harsh words for that person. The betrayer. The cheater, the adulterer, the infidel. Is the offender different? I think it's a little bit gentler. It's a little gentler. I think it's not quite as judgmental. And I'll tell you what, like I've yeah. got I have racked my brains trying to think of what is the appropriate term for that. Uh-huh. That's the best one I could come up with, because we don't have very <laughs> we don't have very kind ones. <laughs> for sure. We don't. Yeah. Maybe you need to make one up. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: So, talk to me a little bit from this offender's perspective. What do we need to know? I mean, this person is also in pain, right?
1: Yeah, I think that's probably the most important first thing to remember. People who betray a partner and actually show up in our rooms seeking help are in absolutely as much pain as the people they've been lying to. And some of them show up in my room you know, before they've told anyone.
0: Mm-hmm. You're the first person that they tell.
1: Yeah. And some people show up in my room decades after, and I'm the only person they've told. I tell you, this kind of relationship experience and choice stays with the offender for the rest of their life. And if it isn't dealt with, healed properly, addressed, whatever, it will trip them up for forever. Those are the things to know. It's possible to come at this situation with just a real depth of compassion. Yeah. How do we
0: grow that compassion? I mean, you know, I often like to explore the places where our own biases kind of get in the way. And whether we're talking about their partner and repairing the relationship or we're talking about society as a whole, the other people in their lives, were talking about how they see themselves, or we're talking about the clinician that they may be working with. Right. We're all bound to come at this kind of situation with different biases, with different predetermined stories.
1: Right. And I do think culturally, you know, and even from a language standpoint, we have a tendency to favor the victim here. And the fact is, there's a circumstance that's pretty remarkable. It's tragic. It's very, very, very painful. And there isn't a lot that's really helpful about labeling a victim in it. <laughs> I know this can be, it's really hard to like wrap your mind around. Like there's no it bad, is. there's no bad guy. So Beth, what do
0: you feel that, that we all need to know that, that can really help us to help the couple and the individuals that are involved?
1: I think that normally in couples counseling or when someone comes to us who has been betrayed, that our tendency is to move right into that really common framework, which is to work at reestablishing trust, helping the couple toward forgiveness, and then reconnecting the relationship and building something greater. And the fact is that that structure... Overlooks the very, very necessary crisis stage that the offender is probably in. They need a oh. little. They need a little extra help, understanding, compassion, empathy. They need to find their own, their bearings. They have, have you discovered a way to help to help get there? Oh, yes! Thank you. <laughs> yes, I'm so excited about this. You know, I've had so many people come to me. In the same set of painful, painful circumstances. Which is to say that they've done something they can't believe they've done. Something they said they would never do. They've violated their own internal value system. I think in some ways, all of us have experienced that in our
0: lives. It might not be the betrayal of a marriage or something of those sorts.
1: But in some ways, we've all had that experience. Right. And really, people come to me, they've lost themselves. They don't recognize themselves, and they're in such a frazzled state trying to make sense of everything. They need some time and some help doing that. So, yeah, the process can start really by asking the right questions instead of digging for the why and the analysis and why did this happen, why did I do this, what's wrong with me, what's wrong with the marriage. And oftentimes a spouse will have that same question. Why did you do this? What's wrong with you? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so will therapists have that. Okay, Mm -hmm. let's dig to the bottom of this. Why did this happen? Why did she choose to do this? Or why did he choose to do this? And it's really the wrong question. Because arriving at the answer to the why question doesn't move you forward. It doesn't get you anywhere. It doesn't help. What does? What moves you forward? Asking the how question, it's gentler, it's process-oriented, it's action-oriented, and it really is set in motion. Asking those right how questions is dictated by what a person really longs to experience, what they want, what do they want in their lives. And some, for the most part, when people come to me and have done this, what they want is peace, they want some sanity, they want to know their own mind, they want to recognize themselves. They want to figure out how to make a decision about the committed relationship or about the affair partner.
0: And Can right, you give us an example of some of these how
1: questions that you might ask? Yeah. So we start by locating, like, what are the things that you really want? Like, I and want, that's where therapy begins. It begins with the what What do you want? Right. So if someone's saying, I just want to feel sane, you know, or I just want to get some peace, I want to move through life without worrying about what everybody else feels. And so in my head, I'm already
0: noticing like a a reactionary kind of comment, and I'm going to call myself out on it. Because in my head, I'm going to like, okay, so if I'm sitting down and I'm having this discussion maybe with my partner about like, what do you want? And they're saying, these are the things I want. I'm not feeling sane. I'm feeling overwhelmed, all this stuff. My internal reaction goes, well, why? Why are you feeling those things? <laughs> <laughs> right. right? So now I'm out of the how and I'm back into the why. And yeah. I, I want a little help trying to sort this through for both myself and our listeners.
1: Mm-hmm. I think we're so tempted towards that. The why oh my god. We're yeah, so tempted. And especially when an affair has happened, we want to dance back there. The important thing is to see how very very useless that is. That it amounts to a pile of crap which is good only for fertilizing a garden and it's not really workable in the relationship. Now, I know that there are tons of things that people are curious about Like, were you doing this at the same time this was happening? When we went on this vacation, were you seeing her? You know, when the you want to get the whole timeline? Because, in fact, when betrayal happens, it draws into question the entire history of the relationship. It just does. And so I know that there's, you know, there's information seeking that is just so compelling, right? When you think about formulating the how question based on the outcome... And you start asking, how can I start to feel sane? It redirects. It really brings some peace. It brings some purpose. It's stuff that you actually can do something with.
0: Now, this is creating leverage for the offending
1: partner. What's it doing and how are you also holding space for the other partner? I think the same thing applies to both people. Real, asking them what they're
0: longing to experience. Yeah,
1: what are they longing to experience? So I do this with couples all the time. They answer that same question based on what are they really longing to experience. And sometimes, you know, the spouse will say something like, "I just want things to be the way they were," right? And or they might utter some unrealistic dream or fantasy, and then that's something to explore too. But they often say things like, I want some peace. I would like to feel like I know what end is up anymore. I want to feel grounded. I want to know that you love me. I want to understand why this happened. That's a big one. Mm-hmm. And people are honest about that, you know. So is that a place where the why can show up more compassionately? Um, yeah, there's a time and a place for the why.
0: It's just not. I'm just thinking that us humans, we're such meaning makers, you know, like we're constantly seeking meaning. We're constantly looking
1: for, for the why. Right. It's our quest. Yeah. And I think, you know, as helpers, we are really fascinated with human behavior. We think that getting to the why is the most important thing. And part of this process is allowing people to come at this in a gentler fashion and ask those gentler questions to one another and for, and for themselves for both parties walk me in a little bit more to this
0: this gentle conversation i know that that you have your own theory that you're developing you call it the holistic human parts theory right yeah right and so i'm taking a leap here but i'm really guessing that this theory informs a lot of your how yeah it definitely does yeah so can you help us, us listeners, understand this this theory a little bit, give us the basics of it, sure. so that we can dive in and really start understanding this? I think we need the theoretical framework in order to understand
1: what you're proposing here, this gentler conversation. Sure. So this has grown out of my own mindfulness-based practice. I say that I'm a mind- mindfulness-based cognitive therapist also combines with person-centered approach and I am a natural existentialist. On top of that, my study of the Enneagram personality typology has fed into developing an innovation that's proven really helpful for people to understand the way that they're made and that and allows them to see themselves and other people accurately, understand that dimension deeply, and invites them into accepting it unconditionally. Now, that that little equation, that's at the bedrock foundation of my entire practice, and it has been from day one.
0: And that, if I just kind of can go back through that, because we went through it pretty fast, but I want to make sure it sounds pretty important. I want to make sure our listeners get it. It's really a process of, and, and I love this, obviously, I mean the title of my podcast alone, right? But it seems like it's partly about seeing the self, understanding the other, and accepting the differences. Am I hearing that correctly? That's what I'm taking away. Sure. Correct me if I'm misunderstanding.
1: Yeah, I've seen that in, in your stuff. and I'm like, that is very similar. Mm-hmm. So this, this little equation, if you write it up as words stacked on each other with an equal sign underneath it mm-hmm. and a plus sign, it really is to see accurately, understand deeply, accept unconditionally equals love for all of us. We have that resonant experience of being loved, of loving when we do that for another or we experience that in our lives. So that basic equation undergirds everything that I do.
0: That makes sense to me. And you know, I'll put that little equation in our show notes too in case people need a visual.
1: Yeah, cool. So then the holistic human parts theory really has grown out of finding that mindfulness-based therapy is not quite enough. We talk an awful lot about the mind-body connection, but we leave out this whole other space for the heart. And in this theory, as is true in the Enneagram typology, people are brain-first, heart-first, or body-first. And so what I've done is actually give it a whole other capacity. Now, in mindfulness-based stuff, when we're doing mind-body connection, we locate emotions in our bodies, and we um, think about our emotions. But having that whole other capacity really acknowledges that a third of the population walks around on the planet being heart-first people. They are heart-centered, and that needs to be addressed as well.
0: Can you talk a little bit? I mean, I think a lot of us know what a mind first, like a a very cognitive thinking person might might appear like. But maybe what we need right now is a little bit of a definition of all three of these kinds of, you know, a brain first, a heart first, and a body first. Sure. Because I'm wanting to understand more about specifically the heart first, but I think we need it in context with the others as well.
1: Yeah. So we'll start with the easiest one, the brain first, because all of us are thinkers. Most of us have a thinking problem. We think too much. We think repetitive thoughts. We think things that are unhelpful. And some of us are so silly. We're so identified with our thoughts. We actually believe them. Or we think that our thoughts are us when in fact they're not. And then some of us are so highly identified with our bodies and our movement in the world. We feel driven like a motor. We are driven by our instincts and impulses. It's We can access our brain and our heart, of course, from that place. And those people, their movement through the world is instinctual. They don't have to think about paying attention to their gut. They just pay attention. (laughs) And then heart first people really, the heart is guiding their movement through the world. And the feelings that they're experiencing are either things that they would like to suppress or run away from or ignore or they want to pay attention to other people's feelings. Or they might be tempted to wallow and stay in their own feelings or, like, unpack them. Self-awareness for heart Do center. they ever enjoy their own feelings? Yeah, when they get healthy. Okay. <laughs> really highly self-aware people in the, the heart realm can be self-absorbed and they can be tossed about by their moods, by their feelings, by their temperament. And that, or it can be like a simmering undercurrent that they're kind of running on and either ignoring or being affected by. And for some people, it's so much easier to pay attention to other people's feelings than to actually pay attention to their own. Now, those people are so highly identified with their feelings. They believe their feelings and they think That they have to deal with their emotions before they can move forward and do that other stuff. Now, all of us, of course, have access to all of those things, but we are not that. We are not that combination. We're not the integration of those things. We're not the balance of those things. We really are this other element that I call. The gentle, benevolent observer, and lots of schools of thoughts, a lot of lots of mindfulness practices refer to the gentle, benevolent observer. I'm keeping that title because it's a fantastic description for the way that part of a person really functions. It's gentle. It's not judgmental. It's not nasty. It's not condemning. It is only for a person's good. It's benevolent, and it's an observer. It's not an actor, it's not a thinker, it's not a feeler. It is an observer. It's that higher consciousness that has the capacity to think about our thoughts, have feelings about our feelings. We can make decisions about any of those things. We can override our impulses and instincts. In fact, it is the the higher consciousness of a person, which is the real person. Now, a lot of times when people come to me, That part of their person is underdeveloped, or it's scrawny, it's tiny. They don't really know it exists. They're dominated by their first strength of their personality. So helping them establish a separate perspective where they're able to step back, observe, be gentle with themselves, and function only for their own good is the first challenge, And I always find that the, you know, this is a huge concept for people who are coming in and they're in a world of pain, right? So this is not the first thing that I'm going to present to them. The very first thing is shifting from the why question to the how question, because that will give them the best relief, the fastest relief. And in fact, practicing doing that helps grow the gentle benevolent observer it grows the gbo because it gets them to step back and go oh wait see i'm doing it again that's a why question or they observe about their partner or about their therapist or their couples counselor whoever else they're seeing will go like oh yeah that's focus on the why question again all right what's my what's my how question what am i really wanting how do i phrase that so that i can find an answer i can actually use it's the first task of actually growing the GBO. And that's mm. why we start there.
0: I'm loving the place that you're heading with this. I'm also feeling stuck in my own framework and needing a little help still, I think.
1: Yeah, help me help you clear out. Yeah.
0: I mean I understand the idea of the gentle benevolent observer. I think I'm understanding the difference between the how and the why. You talk about how this isn't a process of integration.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Right, yeah, and i think I think that's the thing that's kind of holding me back because I'm often looking to bring these different parts together in my own work, in my own personal experience of life you know i'm I'm filtering information that i'm thinking i'm feeling and that I'm sensing, and I'm kind of consolidating all this into my experience and looking at how do I make sense of the world right through this lens. I'm not sure if that's also what you're saying and maybe I'm just making this more complicated or if you're saying something totally different and I'm
1: I'm having trouble picking up on it. No, I think that what it is essentially is one step further than integration. And the, my argument really is that the stuff that we're doing as far as holistic treatment is good, but that it's not quite enough that it actually gives people this idea that being balanced or integrating is the answer or the key. And the approach is really that, nope, that's not actually it. Because we can strive for that kind of balance. We can strive for integrating those things. And, you know, like, okay, that's good. But the real powerful work comes when we go actually to the deepest core of people, and help develop that GBO, which really is in the middle of it.
0: Mm, The gentle, benevolent observer, to really get into that place of that gentle, non-judging witness.
1: Right. You know, that is the place where people actually can do fundamentally transformative work. And I mean, fundamentally, core transformative work, which actually sets them up for healthy relationships with themselves, and with other people. It really is what makes that original equation, the definition of love, actually possible. We come at this kind of like whack-a-mole, sort of, the treating symptoms or trying to change behavior a little bit or address thoughts that are not helpful or examine feelings and what to do with them. And honestly, that's what psychology does, right? We deal with behavior, we deal with emotions, we deal with thinking and every approach has kind of a flavor or a bias about which way we come in with that where we start. Individual people have a bias about where they start also. So my proposal is that that's very nice, it's good, it's great to be aware of thoughts and feelings and behavior but a lot of couples counseling especially after infidelity comes in at the behavior level. Like, let's get the offender to do something different, to be transparent, to cut the affair off, to whatever behavior shift we want to see, right? Actually taking a different approach and going, it's not about integrating behavior and thoughts and feelings. It's really about going to the core of a person. That's why it's holistic human parts. I'm saying that there's this other powerful core thing in all of us that needs to be developed. The fact is, if people were strong in their gentle benevolent observer to begin with, it's Mm -hmm. very unlikely that they would have had an affair. Mm -hmm. We just really probably would not wound ourselves and other people in that way if our GBO were strong on board and online.
0: So this really isn't coming, I mean, it's, it's not coming from a
1: place of shame. It's coming from this place of understanding. Yeah, absolutely. Coming right from the middle of it. I mean, we're all human and we have the capacity to do heinous things. It is really true that everyone who comes to me who has done this surprised themselves by their capacity for lying, deception, and maybe, you know, temptation or response to passion you know i'm
0: I'm feeling an urge to pull us out of this conversation a little but only only a little bit because the the thing that's the thing that's coming to my mind is our world needs this, yeah, you know, and so I know we're talking about these difficult conversations among couples but i've I've been feeling this call for a little while now, and I, I think maybe we can go there together that You know, as couples therapists, we bear witness and we see some of the hardest moments, the darkest moments within intimate, loving relationships. And it's such kind of like a sandbox of the rest of our world.
1: Yeah, very, very true. Right. You know, I've been through this process with so many people. And of course, I've been through the same similar process with people who've been betrayed and people who are suffering from anxiety or depression or can't find a partner or they're having a midlife crisis or of whatever flavor. So, yeah, it's going through that process and that transformative work. Good for everyone, no doubt about it. And
0: (laughs) I think it's also a hard place to access without the necessity of having to go there because of something like an affair that's ripping your relationship apart.
1: Yeah, right. It's a, that's a good catalyst, right? Pain is pain's a great motivator. Mm-hmm. I often call it a portal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like that. It's not yeah. pushing. It's like opening and people can walk through it. I love yeah, that. I
0: think that you know, pain, fear, anxiety, all of these things that, that are uncomfortable for us are often portals when we allow ourselves to kind of be with them, to, if you will, be these gentle, benevolent observers within them. They become portals into their creativity, which then allows us to take action.
1: Yeah, you know, starting with addressing this for the offender, it's just a very specific, pointed audience. Like, it's a population that doesn't usually get the kind of help that they really need in order to heal. And if they don't get the kind of help they need in order to heal... The quality of the marriage that is put back together, perhaps put back together, or the relationship that is left or abandoned, perhaps needlessly, that quality is lower, for sure. So even though I started out writing this book kind of for more of a general population, I wanted to be able to provide something that could be a good handbook for All of my clients, you know, right? Yeah. It really ended up being, feeling so supremely important to direct this really toward that particular client.
0: I love that though too, because so often, you know, when when I'm, Working with other clinicians, one of the things that I often end up talking about is how much the specific becomes so universal.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: You know, that when we, when we really get hone in and get really specific about whom we're talking to, it allows us to get more accurate with our language. But often when we do that, we're not excluding other people. People who may not, who may not fit into those groups are still often having me too experiences. Right. Yeah, I love how that works. Yeah, it's awesome. It's magical. You know, one of the things we were talking about a little bit before we got um, before we started recording was the difference between poor couples counseling and good couples counseling. Mm, yeah, and I wonder if we could back up a little bit and you can walk us through that. What What do you feel? makes for good couples
1: counseling. And what do you feel is
0: a sign of not so good couples counseling?
1: (laughs) I've had the privilege of sitting in lots of really not good couples counseling that made things worse, not better. So I have some personal experience with that too. And you call it a privilege. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was a good learning experience. Mm -hmm. And it helped make me really good at what I do now. So I'm grateful for that.
0: For the professional you,
1: yeah, mm-hmm. and for the personal me mm. too. That challenge was enormous and good. So I think poor couples counseling tries to stick to some kind of format or scripted protocol. And I, like I said before, when there's infidelity, I think not acknowledging the the crisis stage adequately. And understanding that the offender is in as much pain as the betrayed party. Letting that be a necessary part of the process. Because it actually really is very necessary. It's going to happen no matter what. And if it's done properly, then healing is actually possible. If it's not done properly, if it's not acknowledged, then the healing that happens is kind of flimsy. One of the other things that I think happens a lot of times in couples counseling is that really unhelpful patterns of communication that the couple has established get reinforced in therapy i don't let I don't get addressed yeah i don't let my couples do that i don't let them talk to each other the same way anymore i don't need to Mm -hmm. see them do their regular thing in front of me and i honestly work really hard to get them to stop talking i mean stop talking (laughs) stop talking so much your relationship does not happen on the conversation level. Your relationship happens at the heart, the body, and the brain level. You know, Stop I find that so interesting
0: because so I'm, I'm just thinking to a few sessions I've had this week alone where I stood my couples up and we were doing experiential, somatic, sensory-oriented, tantric breathing and different kinds of, of body movement connecting exercises rather than actually talking, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Probably
0: spend a good half of my sessions that way. I like it. (laughs) But I, I, yeah, it's incredibly important. I think we, I agree with you here. We really get stuck in the conversations and in the communication patterns that aren't working and that are frankly the only way we know how to communicate. And when we come to therapy, it can be. A reprieve from all of that. It can
1: help us to rewire something in a new way, Mm -hmm, right? It has the potential to do that. I think Mm -hmm. poor couples counseling just does the same thing. It reinforces that common pattern of communication that happens in in so many realms of our lives, Mm -hmm. not just in couples, but every time that there's a conversation with any weight to it, whether it's between a mother and son or relationships are relationships at work or whatever. Yeah. But that usual way of communicating. Even a lot of couples counseling, you know, and they set little rules like let's not use the word never or always or the word you. We'll just do this with feeling statements and I statements, etc., right? hmm And yet the couple continues to take turns sharing their perspective and practicing being attentive listeners and Maybe getting to the point where they're willing to offer an empathy statement, even if they're not feeling it. And it's not effective transformative work in the relationship and in the communication.
0: Because using using your model, it's not effective because they're not entering into that gentle, benevolent observer state. Right. They're not it's accessing each other from there.
1: It's not even online. Yeah. It's not even part of it.
0: You know, and I think maybe just to break this down for our listeners a little bit, because we, we might be going a little bit deep into the psychobabble. You know, I, I think what we're really saying is this shows up in the more defensive, critical, shut down places that each one of us has experienced in the form of relationships somewhere in our lives. Sure. Right? And it, yeah. so it's it's the the keeping those patterns alive within the context of the therapy that is ineffective.
1: Right. Yeah. People need something else. They need something that actually has a chance of Helping them experience real empathy and respect and connection.
0: Yeah, I think there's there's a lot of different ways to help people get there. It sounds to me that you have certainly discovered a way that works for the couples that you see.
1: Yeah, and I like this. I you know, like the theory underscoring it. And, of course, there are lots of different techniques and examples and practices to help people expand the strength in their gentle benevolent observer.
0: Now, you've just finished writing the first draft
1: of your book. Do you have a title for it yet? Um, I have a working title. Yeah? After the Affair, Healing for the Offender.
0: And this is directed at therapists, or it's directed at the couple?
1: It's written directly to the offender, specifically. Mm -hmm. Specifically.
0: Yep. Yeah, because there's not enough of this conversation happening. No. I'm so grateful that you're bringing this conversation to light.
1: It's really, it's really fun and painful and strange. And And all of the things. (laughs) Yes. It's been all of the good things. Yeah. You know, I have a friend who I've talked to for several years during his midlife singleness. Mm -hmm. And he has been, he, he said this several times, that he's been in a room with several people when the question has been asked how many of you have been cheated on by a partner? And nearly everyone in the room raises their hand. And then the question's asked, how many of you have cheated on a partner? And in the combination of these two questions, every single hand is raised.
0: Everybody knows it from one angle or the other.
1: Right. Or some of us know it from both. Mm-hmm. So the thing that we're talking about is not uncommon to humans it's a thing that we fear intensely in relationship.
0: You know, I'm I'm thinking a little bit about some of Esther Perel's work. Yeah. And, you know, she, she talks so much about this idea of mating in captivity. She talks, I know she has a new, a new book about infidelity coming out shortly. Right. But she talks a lot about, you know, we're not necessarily wired for these long-term monogamous relationships. It's not that we can't do them, but that it takes another level of commitment, awareness, desire to get you there and to keep things hot and spicy and feeling all the stuff while we're in it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think her premise about we're not necessarily wired for monogamy trips me up a little bit. I think I am. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's what I want. It's what I've always wanted.
0: Well, I, th- I think we can want monogamy. We can... We can want to be in monogamous relationships, but this idea of an entire lifetime with one person, at least on a, on a fantasy realm, if nowhere else, we're going to think about being with other people. To say that we're not is, it's shutting us off from parts of ourselves. Sure. Right? Yep. So whether or not we act on those fantasies or not is another whole conversation. But the idea behind And I'm not even sure if I'm attributing this to her right now or to my own work. So I don't want to get this confused and say this is all her. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But I will give her some credit here in terms of at least getting me to think about this. The idea that we can very much have long-term monogamous relationships. It's totally doable. Within the context of a long-term monogamous relationship, some of the heat needs to remain something that we continue to focus on because if we don't, it's really easy to stray. It's easy to stray in our thoughts. It's easy to stray in our hearts. It's easy for things just not to feel so exciting anymore the way that they used to. And as I listened to you talking about the how, you know, and, and the what is it that these people desire, you were talking a little bit about, well, they want things to feel the way they used to or some, the passion or, or these, these pieces. And I think this is another way of having a similar conversation.
1: Mm-mm, right. Right. Yeah, that can be part of the desire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The desire often competes
0: with the everyday life. That, you know, the banality of raising a family or paying the bills <laughs> can damper some of the desire.
1: Yeah. You know, I love Robert Sternberg's Triangular Theory of Love, where he diagrams three elements, to, and their different percentages, He says that we can label every type of love that exists by taking a look at the elements of intimacy, passion, and commitment, and that all of us really are longing for equal parts of those in a consummate love, so that would be an equilateral triangle, and that um, love, which is a balanced measure of all of them, is a consummate love. I think he's right acknowledging that individually, now, at this time in human history it 's what we want it 's what we expect it 's um, what we want to experience and I do think we can be intentional in the development of those elements. We can be intentional about our capacity for passion and developing that and sustaining it and experiencing it we 're not always we 're not going to live there a hundred percent of the time. we are also going to move into other areas that are more commitment oriented that really just have to do with our, our values and our choices. And then with intimacy, which is different from passion.
0: But I think, you know, what, if we go backwards a little bit more and we talk about these, the brain space, the heart space and the body space, you know, there really is some work that has to be done before we can get into this place that you're talking about, because I can, easily see how my instinctual or my thought-making or my feeling-based <laughs> approaches can pull me out in any direction at any time.
1: Right. Yeah. That's why developing the GBO, the Gentle Benevolent Observer, when she is online and large and in charge, you get to be aware of that stuff all the time and make choices about it. And yet, I'm, I'm listening to this and I think I
0: really get what this Gentle Observer, I'm Understanding what this gentle, benevolent observer is conceptually, mm-hmm. and I definitely believe that I have my fair share of moments where I reach this state, but I don't think I live there, <laughs> and yeah. you know, I just want to own that because I, I want to make sure that that those that are listening are also realizing that it's a constant practice,
1: it's a attainable, but we also mess up. <laughs> Yeah, we're not talking perfection. We don't... I mean, that's one of those elements or drives which has us striving or trying really hard or working really hard, right? And that is just an element of effort. We strive in our bodies. We strive in our minds. We strive with our emotions and feelings. And the gentle benevolent observer is really pretty much the opposite of striving, of trying so hard. It's observing And gently.
0: Yeah. And I I see how this could also be the portal to the person who has given up, who is depressed, who is wallowing and doesn't strive anymore. That this is an alternate way of looking at the world, of looking at their relationships and themselves. It takes effort, but it's not necessarily taking
1: that striving effort. Right. Yep. You know, of course I would not be trying to lead clients to this place if I had not experienced it myself and had it be really, truly transformative. Mm -hmm. Opened up spaces in in my life that allowed for really good love and connection to happen. And some of that has been, we haven't talked about this at all, but part of that human parts chart that is part of the theory includes that there is a little snake in all of us that is weaving its way around the gentle benevolent observer. What does that snake do? (laughs) It slithers around in the air. It actually drives us. It got us where we are, messes things up for us. It rears its ugly head and comes out and makes an appearance. And... (laughs) And when the, when the gentle, if you think about this as a visual diagram, when the gentle benevolent observer is small in the middle of a person, the snake is the same size. When the gentle benevolent observer is bigger, that snake just uh, relatively, it just kind of, you know, slimes around in there. We're human. We're not perfect. It's not fitting that we should be perfect or clean or pure. We are human and we carry the element of the snake with us. It both helps us and at a certain point it starts costing us.
0: Yeah, I th- I think this is really helpful especially for my own understanding to be thinking about the the role of the snake <laughs> as also being a role that helps to helps to keep us aware, that helps to keep us on our toes, that helps us to bring that gentle,
1: benevolent server online. Mm-hmm. People come face-to-face with that, and they often do after an affair, right? Because they're having a crisis of identity. Coming face-to-face with the way that they're made, seeing themselves accurately as they do with coming to this understanding together. And it can, it's off-putting, it's upsetting. It's, people recoil from seeing themselves accurately. Because we all have those dark parts. But getting to a place where the snake is in its place, it is what it is. We can name it. We can recognize it when it, when it rears its ugly head. And It's tough work, though. I mean, yeah. th- this, is, this is
0: certainly a huge part of my work, is helping people see themselves accurately, to be accountable to their own to their own self. And in the process of that, having to see not only the parts that they like of themselves, but also the parts they don't like. You know, we live in a very social media world. <laughs> and yeah. one, of the, one of the side effects of this, and I, I talked about this recently on a podcast with John Clark, is that we can really curate what we share of ourselves. And we tend to share The good parts, the parts that we don't mind other people seeing. But Mm -hmm. then there's this other side, this murky, messy, muddy side. And that side is just as valuable if we can let ourselves at least sink in and bear witness. Right. And that bearing witness is that gentle, benevolent observer.
1: Yeah, you think about if the approach were something else, if it's chasing the why, if it's analysis, if it's digging for what's wrong with people as often gets done after infidelity even by lots of therapists it's counterproductive it's impossible to move people to a place of self-compassion and empathy for one another it's just more fear and judgment
0: i like this and i'm also sitting with you know this this i feel like it's a collective journey <laughs> going back to that piece where this whole conversation we can extract and and kind of put back in that sandbox that's life and and the world that we live in these days. Because I feel like so much of our impulse as society is to go to this place of fear and judgment, which is unhelpful. And it doesn't really help us move forward and connect deeper and more intimately and more meaningfully and, and... make any shifts or changes.
1: Right. Yeah. It's been, it's been good to identify, that, like call that what it is. It's fear. It's judgment. They have no place in my life anymore because they've been powerful things that have taken me down some very, very dark paths. I know that's true for my clients. So I want to provide a space that is completely free of that. But I also want to help them create a space within themselves that they carry with them all the time and they have access to all the time that is a place that is free of fear and it's free of judgment. And that's right in the Gentle Benevolent Observer. Even while the snake slithers around it and let all of that, the reality of life being messy and pain being inevitable, and some really awful, dark things being true in the world. I mean, there there are snakes, and there's a snake in each one of us, and it's still good. That's the kind of space and grace that I think really good couples counseling provides for people, especially after betrayal, and I think it's really, really necessary for healing. That's why I love working with this. I mean, I love, love, love working with it. I feel like this is such a great
0: place for us to land. Yeah. Beth, I want to thank you for joining with us today. And I'd love to ask you to let our listeners know where they can find you and when you anticipate this book coming out.
1: Yeah. Well, the book is going to be pushed through my editor and self-publishing. It will be available on Amazon I'm also recording an audible version of it which I'm so excited I found out I could do that that's amazing yeah so hopefully by mid-September and I know that's only two weeks away but dang wow lady I feel compelled (laughs) (laughs) I want to get this out to people I really do and those, those links should, will be— I should
0: add for our listeners, we're recording this at the very end of August of 2017. Right, and, right, right. Um, it may—this episode may be released a little later into the fall. So by the time this episode goes live, it's very likely that Beth's book will already be published. Yeah. And we'll have a link to that in our show notes.
1: Yep. Sounds good. My website is my name, com. So, Luwandi is L-U-W-A-N-D-I. I know you're going to write that down anyway, but I don't know why I'm oh, yeah. saying
0: That's okay. So Beth, thank you again. It's been such a pleasure to dive in with you and to learn more about your approach and this gentle, benevolent observer that holistic human parts theory really helps us to explore and how this can help us to better understand
1: each other, especially in the darker places. Absolutely. Thank you, Rebecca. Oh my gosh, what what a pleasure and a privilege to be able to talk. Oh, pleasure Thank. on my end as well. Thank you. Take care. Thanks, you too.
0: I really enjoyed today's conversation with Beth luandi Lovström. Beth brings to us holistic human parts theory. And what she's really asking us to do is to take some leaps and move from a place of Working in our brains, our hearts, and our bodies kind of exclusively and coming into this more, this next step, this, this place that she says is even further, a step further than integration, coming into a place of the gentle, benevolent observer. This is something that many of us are striving for. It's this, this way of kind of bearing witness to our own journey. It's really another level, another, way of practicing being seen of seeing yourself of as she would say it's part of seeing accurately understanding deeply and accepting unconditionally it's a way of loving ourselves it's my hope that this conversation may have challenged you healing relationships often takes a new perspective a new way of looking at the world it's really common when we're looking at couples where infidelity and affairs have been present, that we look at the offended partner and we help them to heal and rebuild their sense of stability and trust. But what about the other part of that system? That's the stuff that we're diving into in this conversation. And now that you've listened to it, I would love to hear how that landed on you. Beth's new book, After the Affair, Healing the Offender, Will be coming out later this month and can be found on her new website, wholehumantheory.com. We'll include a link in our show notes. For those of you who are looking to deepen your own connections in your relationships, I've been asked to join the folks at Menla for a five-day couples Valentine's retreat called Divine Mirrors. It's all about deepening your conscious connection in relationships i invite you to check it out there's also a link in the show notes and as always your support really helps to keep these shows going we invite you to help support us by going to practiceofbeingseen.com support you can give a little what you feel comfortable with and then go ahead and use the hashtag popscast to share what you love about the show The Practice of Being Seen podcast is produced by me, Rebecca Wong, along with the support of my amazing behind-the-scenes team, Nicole Stevenson and Christy Hausler. Music by Chris Farris Jr. and Sr. and produced by Kidney Stone Studio. We hope that you enjoyed the show and will join us for another episode of The Popscast, brought to you by Connectfulness.